Lord, thank you for this chance to be to gather together in your house with your people and your word before your throne, ready to eat at your table, to recline at your side. Pray that you would teach us today. Pray that you would um, help us know what is necessary for salvation. Help us know what you have done for us. Help us know that we cannot do it ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shortly after dark, on the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 2002, you could find me alone and crying in the dark on the side of a cliff. Um, I picked up a minor in geology when I was in college, and uh, this is in Washington State, so it was mostly glacial geology, glaciers and rocks and mountains and that sort of stuff. And uh, so I was writing a paper on the Blue Glacier in Olympic National Park in the peninsula of Washington, a place that gets almost as much rain as Montawilly. And I decided if I was going to write a paper on this thing, I was going to need to go see the glacier for myself. Uh, I was 22 at the time, and uh, there's a few things that you should know about hiking. One of them is that you should never go alone, ever. Uh, The second thing is that um, no matter how good of friends you have, you don't have a friend that wants to go hiking with you in Olympic National Park in Washington in November and go hiking off trail. Those friends don't exist. Uh, And the other thing you should know is that when you're uh, 22, uh, rule number one, well, just you got to go. You just got to go. And uh, and so I went uh, after Thanksgiving, drove out to the mountains, uh, parked my car, hiked in 17 miles, camped, and then uh, trekked off about five or ten mile, five or ten miles off trail, up a river valley to uh, to meet the bottom of this glacier and see all the landforms by myself. And uh, of course, my uh, trek off trail took considerably longer than I expected, and. Um, There's a long, very interesting story here, but I'm going to truncate it down to this, that as the sun began to set, and I was not remotely where, close to where I intended to be, I became increasingly desperate. And uh, if you have not spent a night alone in the wilderness that you did not intend to spend, um, not with your sleeping bag or your tent or those things, because of course I left those behind at my camp five miles ago. Um, It is hard to describe what an unnerving and emotional experience that is. Even if you know that you're going to survive, to to know that that tonight I am not going to be where I want it to be and I am alone. And that is not an emotion that I enjoyed. And so I became increasingly desperate. And in my desperation, I um, began to develop increasingly complex plans on how I was going to not spend the night alone and how I was going to find the trail and get back to my tent. And as plan after plan didn't work out, I was getting myself progressively in more and more trouble 
out of my desperation until fast forward, I find myself in complete darkness on the side of a cliff that's so steep, there's no um, plants or trees. It's just dirt and rocks. And below me, somewhere below me, I can't see it, but I can hear it, is a raging ice-cold river. And above me is a rock wall. And uh, that is the moment where I finally realized how much danger I was getting myself in by my continued efforts. And I cried again. And I prayed. And I decided that, that I need to stop. That these plans are getting me in more and more trouble. And Lord Jesus, if you can just get me off of this cliff, I promise I will stop. I will stop right here. And I will stop desperately trying to save myself and get back to the trail. I'll just stop. And uh, after having a good cry, I decided to shimmy over towards the right. And after about 50 feet, I found a little depression, a little kind of bowl-shaped ledge in the cliff that I was on, about the size of a person. And so I praised God and crawled into that little depression and spent the night there uh, until the sun came up. Jesus' message for us today is that unless you have felt that way about your spiritual life, unless you have felt feelings of desperation that everything that I'm trying is only making this worse and there's no way out and I need help, unless you have felt that about your spiritual life, you cannot see And you cannot enter. And you do not know. Our story uh, begins. We were last in John. Uh, Jesus made water into wine. And then he traveled down to Jerusalem and uh, he cleansed the temple. These are John's two signs for what Jesus' ministry is going to look like. And then something great happens. That... uh, He cleansed the temple. That was a kind of a sign. And apparently he's done many other things in Jerusalem because everyone's there for the Passover. And many people begin believing in him. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We'll find out in a minute that even one of the Pharisees, one of the ruling class, is taking interest in Jesus and believes that he is from God. This is a great moment. That what we have wanted to happen is finally happening. That this thing has some motion to it, some movement. People are gathering together to Jesus. It's starting to feel like a movement. People are coming together. It's electric. The Lord is doing something. Even the leaders are coming. This is catching on. This is great. Jesus is becoming known for who he is. If I'm Jesus at this point, I declare victory. This is awesome. We are on our way. And at this moment of impending victory, Jesus says something that sounds and feels to us like dark clouds on the horizon. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. The word in the first verse that many people believed in his name. And then the word where it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. 
So you could say that the, G- the people entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. You could also say that the people believed in Jesus, and Jesus did not believe the people. And what's worse, it's not because Jesus didn't know better. It's actually because he, he did know. That uh, when Jesus looks out in the world, and even sometimes when he looks at people who are coming to him, he doesn't always see victory and growth and progression. He sees something so concerning that he does not entrust himself to them. He does not believe us always, even when we believe in him. Something in the heart of man is deeply troubling to Jesus. Chapter 2 ends with this phrase, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And chapter 3 begins, now there was a man. Man is anthropos. It's the same word. And that now, it's actually an and. So you can start in 25. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about an anthropos, for he himself knew what was in an anthropos. And there was an anthropos of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Uh, So despite the fact that there's a big number three there and a chapter break, these verses go together. And Nicodemus is our test case for what is in the heart of a man. Um, Just like the crowds following Jesus, there's quite a few positive and really encouraging things about Nicodemus. For one, he comes to Jesus This is what we want. We want people to come to Jesus. And Nicodemus has gone out of our way. Jesus is in town. He's doing signs. He's perhaps teaching. And Jesus takes the initiative. Nicodemus takes the initiative to move towards Jesus. He wants to meet Jesus. He wants to speak with him. Nicodemus recognizes that God is with Jesus. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to Jesus. He knows that God is with him. And he is, uh, he's a trained Israelite. Um, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so he's the, a member of the most moral sect of Judaism that living rightly and pleasing God is probably more important to him than anyone else. He's a teacher of these things. And so he's, um, he's been teaching people the ways of God. He's a student of the Old Testament. And he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. He's in the ruling council. This, this guy, he's like a, a, a pastor, uh, a member of a session, member of a presbytery. Uh, he's been involved in God's work for a long time. He recognizes that God is with Jesus, and he comes to Jesus. And um, so you would think that this is the moment where Jesus says, finally, this is excellent. I've got an inside man. Jesus says, or Nicodemus says, we know. And Jesus says, you don't know. Because there's a number of concerning things about Nicodemus. Uh, Firstly, he comes by night. The commentators have a lot of things to say about why Nicodemus came tonight. Some say, well, the Pharisees had a habit of sort of doing dialectical discussions at night. 
you know, or maybe he was afraid and he was kind of sneaking to Jesus by night. Whatever the reason, what we do know is that in the Gospel of John, light means the presence of God and joy and freedom and night and darkness always means emptiness. The lack of real faith and the darkness of the world. And so even this great teacher of Israel comes to Jesus in darkness. He recognizes that God is with him, but he does not confess Jesus is Lord. We talked about that last Sunday. Jesus as Lord, that is not Nicodemus' confession. Uh, he doesn't even call him the prophet or a prophet. He's just, eh, God is with him. Perhaps most troubling, he doesn't ask any questions. There's apparently nothing that Nicodemus needs to know from Jesus. Because he knows. We know. We know. That God is with you. For no one can do the things you're doing unless God is with him. He says, we know. um, Perhaps communicating some sense of weight or authority. Um, when, when I come to someone and I say, the session says, or the presbytery says, it's because I'm trying to communicate, this is, this is not just me, I'm, we're, there's a group here and, and there's a body of authority and we know, we are telling you something. Ultimately, what's in Nicodemus' heart is something like this. I am, we are able to assess whatever evidence that you may bring forward. We are here, we know, we have studied, and we are interested in assessing your credentials. It's important for us to know that if there was anyone who was ever qualified to do this, it was Nicodemus. He almost certainly knew the Old Testament better than any of us. It was all the things I've said about him before. A teacher of Israel, one who was looking for a Messiah, a person in a position of authority in God's kingdom. If anyone had qualifications or credentials that would merit them the ability to assess Jesus' credentials, Nicodemus is it. And all that Jesus has to say is, you don't know. You don't know and you cannot see. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, He cannot see the kingdom of God. What is this reborn, born from above? It can be translated either way, by the way. What is happening? This is one of these really bizarre questions where someone says something and Jesus says something that does not seem to relate to the conversation at all. But we know from the flow of thought later on, Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel, you should have known these things. That it should be clear, it should have been clear to Nicodemus what Jesus was saying, what he was teaching. should have been clear from the scriptures that Nicodemus read, which at that point is the Old Testament. And so if we look back into the Old Testament, trying to figure out what is this born from above thing, we know that in the fall, in the beginning, God said, don't eat from that tree. And if you do, you'll die. 
Genesis 2:16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent says, you won't really die. And it does kind of seem like the serpent is right because they don't, Adam and Eve don't actually die. They live on and have children. But the rest of scriptures interpret a type of death. What we would now call a form of spiritual death took place in Adam at that moment and became part of our race as human beings. It speaks of it in the fall. David says, King David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that marital activities are sinful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, from my very birth, there's a kind of brokenness in me. Psalm 58, the wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. And so we hear in the New Testament, again, speaking of the fall, speaking of Adam, Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all men sinned. So there's some kind of death taking place that's not physical death, although physical death does eventually result, but that's not really what we're talking about. That through one man, through Adam's transgression, sin into the world, and through sin, death. That Adam is now, biblically speaking, dead. And so are his children. And so the prophets can say things like Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? In the New Testament, they begin drawing this contrast between people who are God's children and people who are... uh, Look, I would not put it this way, but the apostles did. People who are Satan's children. That if you have this heart of corruption, if you are spiritually dead, you are, in effect, a child of the devil. Paul draws this contrast in Ephesians 2. And you who made alive, we'll talk about the alive part in a bit, don't worry. He made you alive when you were dead. Through your trespasses and sins in which you walked. It says we've talked about, even though you're physically alive, before conversion, you are dead, spiritually speaking. And when you were dead, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Timothy, he says, 2 Timothy 2, God may perhaps grant, he's speaking of evangelism, praying for others, God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is why Jesus later in John, in John chapter 8, in um, refusing to debate with people about whether or not he is the one from above, can simply look at them and say, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So there's a sense which Nicodemus should have known from the Old Testament that from the fall onward, there is a type of death. 
in which we are born and we're alive, and yet on the inside we are dead. And that none of us can see rightly or know or enter in because of the deadness of our hearts. That's why the, it's the great crisis of the Old Testament that Jesus in the Old Testament, God in the Old Testament, is always raising his people up, delivering them, giving them this great mission to be his representatives to the nation, the shining city on a hill, and they never do it. They, they just cannot pull it off. It's that the, the reading the Old Testament, in some sense, is an exercise in frustration. Like, it, it could have been that great and never was, and so... Finally, when the prophets come and prophesy a healing, what it has to do with is the deadness of our hearts. That this problem, the problem of the Old Testament, won't be done away with until we can undo the deadness of our hearts. We learn in the history of Israel that what God said in the garden is true. That if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Nicodemus answers, how can these things be? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't know what's going on with Nicodemus at that point. I think that he knows that Jesus is not talking about crawling back into your mother's womb. But that what is Jesus is talking about is so not on Nicodemus's radar, so surprising, shocking, confusing, completely not part of his paradigm that he doesn't even know what to say other than, I do not know how this can be, which later on in verse 9 is literally his response. How can this happen? Nicodemus probably spent a lifetime studying the Old Testament and yet completely missed this theme. He probably spent, especially as a Pharisee, his whole career teaching people about joyful obedience and works of the law and earning God's favor, and in a sense had perhaps become so distracted by his own righteousness that he had missed his own death. And so Jesus answers again in a couple ways that seem to not make sense. He says, Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a parallel statement. Unless one is born from above, you cannot see. Unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So being born of water and the Spirit is an explanation of what it means to be born from above. And again, Jesus expects that Nicodemus would have understood what he's talking about simply by being an Old Testament scholar. And so, to understand what does it mean to be born in water and the Spirit, we should look back in the Old Testament. And as God talks about his people's need, um, as the Old Testament would say, their uncleanness and their need to be cleansed, the teachers and the prophets increasingly speak of the need for God's own Spirit to come. And the metaphor that comes again and again for God's own spirit, is that God's own spirit must be poured out. That God's spirit comes and cleanses. It softens the heart and it cleanses and washes away the death and the uncleanness. Like the pouring of water 
in the rituals of the Old Testament and washes away uncleanness. And so water and the Spirit are in a sense the same thing. It's the Old Testament imagery of the pouring of water and the Spirit of washing and renewal. At the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three feasts, where all the Israelites would gather together and recite scriptures together, one of the scriptures they would recite is from Zechariah 14, and the high priest would take a pitcher of water in the sight of all Israel. They would parade up through the town towards the temple, and a high priest would take a pitcher of water, and he would pour it out before the altar. And all the people would declare how that when the Spirit comes, it will be like water flowing out half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It's a picture of the Spirit of God pouring down like water and cleansing his people. Jesus is saying that without the work of the Spirit... The cleansing work being poured out like water. It's a type of rebirth where you're already alive and yet dead. And because of the work of the Spirit, you become spiritually alive again. That that is what is necessary to be able to see, to be able to enter into. To have your heart and mind cleansed and softened and set free from your former manner of life. And really from your inability to feel for your inability to feel your own desperation and need. The generations of Israelites trying and failing. Jesus continues analogy in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Literally, flesh begets flesh, and spirit begets spirit. That flesh does not beget spirit. Um, he's setting up a dichotomy. He's basically there, he's saying there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are physically alive and spiritually dead. And they are flesh. And flesh begets flesh. And they are, in a sense, a people of non-possibilities. And there are people who have been born again from the Spirit and made alive. And the Spirit brings life, and brings forth more spirit. And just as, like, I wish this was not true, but just as there is nothing that you contributed to your original birth, there is nothing for you to contribute or create or invite the second birth. It's something that the Spirit will or will not decide to do in you and make you alive again. Jesus says, it's like the wind blowing. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You don't know where it's going. You can't control it, and you can't predict it. You just see what happens when it's doing its thing, and it's like that with the Spirit. That you can see a person's life change when the Spirit is at work. You don't know where it comes from. You can't make it happen. You don't know where it's going. You can't predict it. But we can see it when it happens. Again, from the Old Testament, them prophesying about the need for this rebirth. When Jeremiah promises what's coming, he says, what's coming is a new covenant where we will put the law in your hearts. That the problem is deadness of heart, and so a spirit will come and revive it inside you. In Ezekiel's communication of the same thing, the Lord says, I will take your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
And then he gives Ezekiel a vision of what that looks like. He says, Ezekiel, what do you see? This is Ezekiel 37. And he looks out on what? A field of dry bones. This is what we were singing about in our song earlier. The dry bones are Israel. They're alive and yet dead. So dead that the rotting has finished. And um, everything has fallen off. And all that's left is a field of bleach white bones. And the Lord says, see what I will do. And he breathes on them. And literally, as Isaiah is looking, or Ezekiel is looking, he sees sinews, connective tissues appear on the bones. And then muscle. And then flesh. And they stand up again. This is the Lord's promise of what he's going to do for his people, but also a depiction of what is necessary. That we as humans are like a field of dry bones. And what the Spirit can do is to put flesh back on them. Not because of any effort they do, but to make them alive again. I think the very beginning of the work of the Spirit is to feel that desperation. To feel your need of this to happen to you. That unless, unless I am reborn unless something happens to me such that I am born again from above. I am born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. There's no hope for me. A feeling of desperation like in Jeremiah 17 and the deceitfulness of the heart that I don't even know. I don't even know how to deal with my own heart. Um... Well, Jesus does says, say this is possible. And the Spirit does come and make people alive. We see it in a powerful way on Pentecost, but it seems tr- clear from the Scriptures that it, it actually happened throughout history. That it happens in a new way in the New Testament, but there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. That any time you see the signs of not just physical life, but spiritual life, of softness of heart, of desperation for salvation and transformation, the Spirit is at work. That There's all these psalms in the Old Testament where the Israelites are praying for their king. And here's what's happening. Israel is God's people, and many of them, sometimes even most of them, are spiritually dead. But out there in Jerusalem, at the corner of D and 8th Street, there's a lady who the Holy Spirit made alive. And in her heart, she knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be and cries out and connects with these psalms. Lord, help us move within our people. Save our king. It has always been the experience of God's people, and so it is today. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that that has not yet happened to him. But it has happened to some of us, perhaps most of us here. So what is it like to be made alive by the Spirit? It's the opposite of everything that Nicodemus is. You don't come with answers. You come with questions. You need to be taught by Jesus. Rather than um, the desire to examine Jesus' credentials, which is necessary, by the way, you know you're alive when the fundamental orientation of your heart is a desire to be transformed in the ways that the Holy Spirit was designed to do, to renew your heart, to cleanse you, to have the Spirit come in fullness. 
And so your stance, rather than being examining or assessing or passing judgment on Jesus, becomes a feeling that, um, that we have been found by him. That, um, that we were the ugly ones. And that he came and made us alive. That that is um, what Jesus is looking for in his followers. That we are the people who have the joy that comes with having been made alive even when we were gross and unclean. I have a friend in another part of the world that I think may have just been converted. Um, I've known him for quite some time, and he's been a churchgoer for quite some time, and I didn't even know that he wasn't converted. Um, He's made some unfortunate choices in his life, and he has suddenly come to the place where he is really hurting and is suddenly talking to me a lot about just what a broken person he is and how desperately he needs forgiveness and he's not sure if it can ever come. And I wasn't quite sure how to comfort him, but I said, my friend, all faith begins with desperate faith. And he immediately responded and said, yes, yes, it does. It does. I've never realized what Jesus has done for me before, and I'm still not sure if he can love me. But if he could, it would be so great. And if you have had that moment at some point in your life, my friends, that, that is life. That is what it means to see and to enter in. And if that's you, more things happen. That you you see your desperation of need, but you increasingly see Jesus in a way that perhaps did not occur to you before as the beautiful one. The, the gracious one, the perfect one, the loving one. And, and you more and more feel in your heart and tear up at the thought that he could care for you and he has welcomed you in and his son, as his daughter, as his friend. That he has made you clean and alive and welcomed you into this place and it becomes an increasing joy to enter in here and to be into his presence, to treasure his word, to treasure time with him. There's a few things more that are true when you're in that state. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. Well, he's speaking of the dead heart. My friends, that is not true of you. If you really are spiritually alive, stop quoting that verse about yourself. Stop it. It's not about you. It's about the desperation of our condition and our need to be revived. And if you've been revived, yes, there's ugliness still in there. And and yes, there's work remaining to be done. But it is no longer true that your heart is dead and deceitful above all things. It It is opening. Your heart is opening like a flower before the Lord and increasingly experiencing the rays of his sunshine. That is what it means to be alive. And finally, just as... Jesus does not entrust himself to those who are not really alive. He does entrust himself to you. He trusts you. He trusts me. 
that um, I've said quite a few times, I think it was a bad idea for Jesus to put human beings in charge of the church. And I really do kind of think that, but Jesus doesn't. That for those with revived hearts, he delights to entrust himself to us, his reputation, his message, his mission on the earth, us as his people. There's a sense in which we have a right, not a right, we have a freedom to be wrong because he has decided that it's so, that he entrusts himself to us in the care of one another as his spirit increasingly makes us alive. Um, I should mention, by the way, that uh, some of you have been spiritually alive since before you can remember. In Presbyterianism, we call you covenant children. And that's a viable version of how this works. That for some of us, we were lost, as Paul says, in the darkness of night and... um, The Lord set us free and made us alive. And for some of us, we've always been alive. But even then, the mark of life is that from the earliest days, you knew the darkness of your heart and had that softness and felt need to be saved by him. Jesus is speaking here not to the nations. He's speaking to those who don't really believe in him. And he's also speaking to people who are of God's own household. And that's possible. There was an idea in Nicodemus' day that all Israelites would enter the kingdom of God. If you're an Israelite and you weren't obviously apostate or doing obvious intense sins, you were basically in. And that is not how it works in Jesus' kingdom. Um, that in every age there are, there are people present in God's people in the church who are not really alive. And just as if you know that if you have softness of heart and tears of joy that you were the ugly one and Jesus came and saved you, if you have not experienced those things, those should be the things that worry you. Are we assuming that just because we're in church that all of us will arrive in the kingdom? Is your uh, spiritual life one based on the joy of having been loved though you didn't deserve it? Or is your spiritual life one based on the confidence that you've mostly got it together? How do you respond when others challenge you or question your choices? And do you find yourself with an ever-increasing love for Jesus and his word and his spirit and his presence? Because those are the things that make for life. And if you're here and you are freaking out right now, stop freaking out. Because you don't freak out about those things unless you are alive. And if you are not freaking out about any of those things, Perhaps you should. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... um